take our Bibles again, turn over to the book of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Again, uh, we've been in a series, a series entitled Born to Die, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll very briefly summarize the introduction, move right on into our main emphasis today. But again, I'm glad you're here and a part of the service. What a great group that's gathered this morning in the Lord's house. Thrilled to have you. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Again, we have the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, being described here in this passage. He was born and then placed in a manger. It would not be very long after that the shepherds would make their way there. This has been noted already. One of the things that they were told they would find would be a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. The series Born to Die was basically born out of the fact that Mary wrapped Jesus in swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes were used two times in the lives of a person. They were used for infants. Strips of cloth were wrapped tightly around that child to ultimately make it feel secure and safe. But also, swaddling clothes were then used in death, where the body, after being covered with spices to preserve it, was then wrapped tightly in swaddling clothes all over again. In This particular picture, Jesus being born and then wrapped in swaddling clothes, we are given a foreshadow of his death. The fact that ultimately he was born to die. And may we never lose sight of that fact. That Jesus was born to die so that we who are dead could live. We said that Jesus Christ lived his life realizing that he was going to die on a cross. That he would suffer at the hand of his very creation. 
that ultimately he would be nailed to a cross and there he would suffer, bleed, and die for you and I. He came to earth from heaven. God himself taking on the form of humanity. And he lived a life like you live a life. He felt all the hurts, endured the heartaches, faced the troubles and the trials, the same that you and I do, all along knowing that he was going to face Calvary, make that climb up Golgotha, where he would die. He was born to die. And he knew it. So the question that we've asked is, how could he live such a victorious life and still be facing the cross always? How could he live day to day with such hope, strength? How can he do that as he faced Calvary always? In Mark 10, he told his disciples, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to, be, to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. So listen, I know what's going to happen to me. I'm well aware of my fate. I know where I'll end up, but I can face this. And he did victoriously. How did he do that? Well, over the past few weeks, we said that the reason or some of the ways he could face life victoriously and overcome such potential despair and grief and overwhelming heartache is because he lived a life of purpose, a life of passion, a life of promise. And finally today we're going to see that the Lord Jesus Christ lived a life of power. A life of power. We know that Jesus Christ was the creator and the healer. But we cannot forget that he was or became man. In Philippians 2.7 the Bible tells us, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. If he was just like you and I, and he had to face all of those obstacles, and ultimately point in the direction of Calvary, and know that he was going to die on a cross, how could he face it? How could he deal with it? Well, he lived a life of power. And you know what? I, I want to share with you today some practical tools that the Lord Jesus Christ employed that empowered Him in His life. That enabled Him to be victorious even though He faced the cross daily. So I want to share just three simple tools that He had at His disposal that you and I now have at our disposal that can help us to live a life of power even when it seems that we wouldn't be able to make it. Father, we come to you, Lord, again. We thank you for this time. And we are certainly grateful, Father, for your goodness. And we're asking you, Lord, to put a calm upon this place. Father, our hearts 
are in need of a touch from heaven. We pray, dear God, that you'd help us, Father, to be faithful to you in these next minutes. Faithful to listen to your word, to obey your Holy Spirit, to allow you to work in our life. Father, may you help us today. Oh, Lord, we need you, and we're just praying that you'll be blessed as a result of our obedience. And may you help me, Father, to be filled with your Spirit. May I, you stand in my shoes, and may I become your mouthpiece. Be glorified now, Father, in this place we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So what practical tools did the Lord employ that empowered him in this life? That enabled him to face a cross and yet still not be so depressed and discouraged and down in the mouth, but to virtually live a life more victoriously than any man ever has? First of all, he lived a life of prayer. Prayer was a tool that he had. Years ago when I was in Germany, I remember that a, a, a woman that I worked for, she was a computer uh, science major in college. She'd graduated. They put her in charge of the computer system of the regimental headquarters. And when uh, I, at some point, was enlisted to go and help in that arena, I wasn't trained to do that, but somehow that ended up being a job. They offered it to me. It meant long hours. I worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week, basically. I had time to go to the to, to the uh, uh, to, I guess, church if I wanted to. I could do that if I chose. And, but other than that, I, I worked all the time. It was an amazing job, though. I learned so much. It was such an opportunity. I learned from her. She worked five days a week, about eight or nine hours a day. And every day she would teach me things about computers. She'd teach me things about her job. And she taught me how to do that kind of work. I learned some valuable lessons from Sarah St. Jane. She was a young woman at that time, married to an officer. I was working there. And man, I mean to tell you, she taught me so many things. One of the things she taught me, though, was important. She said, see, I, I had done pretty poorly in school up to that point as far as college was concerned. I'd spent some time a year in college. I'd gotten some pretty poor grades. They had called me in the office and threatened to, uh, well, I quit before they could. And... Uh, so I went in the military, actually I, I, I went in the military because I'd already gone to trade school already and got some welding degrees and all that stuff. And so I went into college, I did not do well. I spent more time probably down playing pool than I spent studying my lessons. And as a result of that, I didn't do too well. Well, anyway, when I got over there and I got tied in with Sarah St. James and, and Major, uh, and, 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 and I'm just going to forget his Major Thompson, I remember that I learned some valuable lessons. She told me, she said, my dad always told me, he always said that you have to put certain tools in the bag. If you have certain tools in the bag, you can get any job done. And I thought to myself, really? She said, yeah. She said, you, you can do whatever you put your mind to, Mark. I'm well aware of that. I've watched you do things. But here's the problem. You have to make sure that you prepare yourself and you put some tools in the bag. And if you have the right tools in life, you can accomplish anything. Now, Sarah, I don't know how old she was. She seemed a lot older than I did, of course. I was pretty young in the military. But all I know is that she was a pretty wise woman. And she said about tools in that bag. And I remember that from the day she taught me that. And I started preparing myself. I started learning things that I thought would help prepare me for the future. And let me tell you something. God wants you to put some things in the bag. 
He wants you to have some tools at your disposal. And one of the tools that Jesus had at his disposal that made him victorious, that enabled him to live a life of power and be productive and overcome every obstacle in his life was prayer. You say, well, I know about prayer. I don't know if that's enough sometimes. I mean, I know a lot of things, but if I don't use them, it doesn't do me any good. Prayer is something that doesn't do you any good knowing about. It's something you must apply and use. Then I can say there's a, 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 a wall we need to frame over here, and here's the hammer and the nails. But if I never pick up the hammer, there's never going to be a wall built. And you can know all about prayer, but if you don't ever pick it up and use it, it'll mean nothing and it'll accomplish nothing in your life. Jesus turned to prayer and stress and weariness in his life. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, it says, And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. I mean, he went away. He sent the multitudes away. And then he went up into a mountain apart to pray. Can I tell you why he sent the multitudes away? The same reason why we like to get away from the multitudes. There's a lot of stress sometimes, a lot of pressure. People always on your back, always grabbing at you, calling at you, pulling at you, tugging at you. Then he said, I love people and I love to meet needs and I, I really enjoy it. But remember, he was just a man like you are. He had flesh just like you had. He got weary and tired just like you did. He understood what, what sorrow was. He understood what stress was. He understood all those things. And he said, I've got to get away. And what did he do when he got away? He prayed. He prayed. The Bible refers to this place of prayer as the secret place. In the book of Psalm chapter 91 verse 1 it says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. A secret place. When I was a kid, me and my, my aunt, my aunt was only a year older than I was. She was the same age as my brother. And uh, we, we had a secret place over at their house. They had 63 acres. They didn't own it. They rented it. But we, it was ours as far as we concerned. They had a big swamp we could play in. My mom hated that. And uh, she always thought there was going to be quicksand. We'd all be gobbled up. She said, you're going to die. Quicksand. You're going to step into a quicksand, and then you're going to die. And so we used to pretend. We used to look for quicksand, you know. And we'd step in it and just test the water, so to speak. Now, how smart is that? <laughs> Sounds like kids, doesn't it? Especially little boys. But my aunt was crazy, too. She did nutty stuff. But anyway, we had... Uh, we, we, we would get together and we'd go out into those woods and we had a very secret place. A place where none of the adults knew. At least we didn't think they did. It was a very special place. A magical place. It was called the Cricket House. <laughs> no joke. And all it was was a, a big, like... Push. I don't even know what it was yet, but it was all grown up over this way. And you'd, you'd weasel your way in. We had a little passageway in the back. And we'd climb in there. And all the way around this thing was this, this open area where we could sit and talk and hide. It was a secret place that we would go. And when we heard Mom and them scream because we did something crazy, we'd run to the cricket house. Hide. If they can't catch us, we'll never get in trouble. The secret place. And you know what? God says there's a secret place for us. 
When, I mean, when, when it seems that the pressures of life are weighing heavy on us, when the weariness of our body is fainting, and when we, can't, we, we realize that we're about ready to fall apart, we need to be in that secret place. And you know, the truth is, he says we can meet him in that place every day. So that we never get to that place where we're ready just to unravel. Although it's certainly tempting and easy to, isn't it? The secret place, that prayer. See, Jesus turned to prayer in stress and weariness. He also turned to prayer in sorrow and suffering. He had received news that Lazarus was very ill. And he tarries a couple of days. He doesn't just immediately take off and make his way to Bethany, but... Instead, he holds up for a while. And then after a few days, he says to his disciples, All right, it's time to go see Lazarus. Well, Lazarus has died now. And as he arrives there, he's met by Martha, who, being very distressed, virtually blames the Lord for the death of her brother. Says, If only you would have been here, Jesus. If only you could have been here earlier, he would not have died. She's right about that, if he had chose to heal him. Certainly he wouldn't have died. Jesus, however, goes on to ensure her and comfort her by saying, He will live again. And she's like, I know he'll live again in the next second resurrection, but I'm talking about now. Mary finally shows up on the scene as well. She has the same attitude, really. She's looking to Jesus and says, Oh, Master, if only, if only you'd have been here. She's weeping now. She's crying. He arrives there and she takes him to where the others are, are gathered and there weeping and crying over the loss of this wonderful man, Lazarus, the brother and friend and family member of so many. And Jesus' heart is stirred now. And the Bible says in John eleven thirty three, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He was troubled. See, he was just like you and just like me. Jesus knew hurt hurt and heartache. He knew sorrow and suffering. And there he was troubled that day. The Bible says in John 11, 41 and 42, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by it, I say it, I said it, that thou mayest believe that thou hast sent me. Man, I mean, he's troubled. His heart is breaking. And he cries out to his father. In the midst of that heartache. The next words out of his mouth. Lazarus. Come forth. And he does. But he prompted all that with prayer. He turned to prayer in sorrow and suffering. Think about Jesus as he prepares to make his way to Golgotha, the literal cross where in which he would die. He's there now in the garden. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. Why, Jesus? My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. 
I've got business to take care of. I've got to pray. I'm facing one of the greatest trials in my life. I'm going to endure some of the greatest grief I've ever endured. I'm going to suffer like never before. I've got to pray. I've got to pray. How is it that Jesus could live a life so victoriously facing a cross, knowing that death was all he had to look forward to? He had that first tool called prayer. But number two, he had the second tool, the Word of God. See, Jesus turned to the Word of God when he was tempted, didn't he? I don't know about you, but I've been tempted a few times. Every day. And so are you. It's just a fact of life. It's the way it is. Jesus said, listen, I'm tempted. I mean, he was led away of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 4, if you have your Bible. Let's take a little walk through the Scripture just very quickly. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward a hungred. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. The temptation. You see it? How did Jesus respond? But he answered and said, It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He's again attempted by the devil. And even as he turned to the word of God before, he will now do it again. In Matthew 4, 7, Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Satan, of course, is relentless, isn't he? He never gives up. He continues to attack. He persists to attack and tempt the Lord Jesus as well. But once again, Jesus turns to Scripture to defend and withstand the devil. In Matthew 4.10 he says, Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Jesus utilized the Word of God. He used it as a tool in the midst of temptation. It enabled him to have the very strength he needed to overcome the tempter, to overcome Satan, to overcome his adversary. He had great power through the Word of God. And so do you and I. Just a note, however, you'll notice that Jesus didn't dig out his concordance and look up a verse as the devil was tempting him. The devil comes to him and says, Jesus, turn that stone into bread. Jesus says, hold on a second. Give me a minute. We get over here. Bread. Let's see, I think there's a verse about that. Let me see here. Can you hold off? Slow down on the temptation until I come up with a verse to share with you. Finds it. Oh, yeah, it's over there. I'll turn to that one. He didn't do that, did he? No, he quoted the Word of God. 
He just quoted it. That means that the Word of God had been committed to memory then. That means then that it was already in his mind and already implanted in his heart. Before the devil came and tempted, he had already prepared himself with the Word of God. Hold on. Notice also that he applied the verse effortlessly. Not only did he quote a verse, but he applied it. I mean, when the devil tempted him, in each situation he applied the appropriate verse the right way. That means that he was well versed in the meaning and the application of Scripture. See, few believers can quote any Scripture. And even fewer have a grasp on its meaning and application. I mean, it's one that you say, well, I learned John 3.16 as a kid, and I'm so glad you did. And it is a tremendous verse, and I mean, it, it, it carries a tremendous message and bears a tremendous weight. What a wonderful verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a tremendous verse to commit to memory. But if that verse has not been applied in your life, even that doesn't do you any good. Now, all I'm saying is, you, you need to understand that if we truly want victory, if we really want power through the Scriptures, then we need to have much Scripture memorized. We ought to take time to memorize Scripture. We ought to take time to meditate on Scripture. We ought to take time to really understand how to apply Scripture. And that's why we have discipleship around here. That's why we provide Bible studies. And that's why sometimes we do things differently. Our Bible classes on Sunday at 10 o'clock take the Bible, break it down a little bit more, and try to make it a little more, I guess, palatable and digestible. And that's why often when we preach, we try to keep things very simple. Why? Because it does no good to pretend that we're so smart around here. What good does that do? We live in a real world. We need a Bible that applies to real life. And we need to know how to apply it to our lives. And so Jesus had the Word of God. He turned to the Word of God when He was tempted. He had the Word of God in his, hidden in His heart, and He had it at His disposal because He knew how to apply it. Not only that, but He turned to the Word of God when He was troubled. He says in John 10, verse 17 and 18, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. This commandment. We talk about the Word of God, we call it what? A book of what? Commandments often. It's just one thing that it contains is the commandments. The Word of God. You say, well, what's in, what's in the Word of God? The commandments. That's one thing that's in the Word of God. That's the one, one part. Well, guess what? Jesus said, I got this. This commandment have I received of my Father. What he's saying is, my life's in jeopardy, but I have a promise. I, I, I have a promise here. And it sounds similar to the psalmist in chapter 23 that says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And I'm going to tell you what, you want to find some comforting? Let God do it through this. Man, there's comfort in this book. There's comfort in the words of Christ, the commands of Scripture. There's comfort in the precepts found in this book. This is a book that you can 
take to the bank. This is a book that you can cast all your care upon. You know God's living and you know God's alive and you know God's speaking when you open this book. He'll use His promises to encourage you and strengthen you along life's journey. The Word of God. But then finally, what's another tool that was in His bag of, or His arsenal? We said prayer, we said the Word of God, but finally, let me just say this, the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost. We're talking about living a life of power. Listen, if you're a believer today, or if you're not, even if you have yet to receive and accept Christ as Savior, I'm going to tell you, prayer is a means of power. The Bible, the Word of God, is a means of power. And the Holy Spirit of God, He is a power source. He's like a nuclear power plant. Except He's not so volatile. He's a little bit more controlled. The Holy Ghost. Turn to book of, you know, the book of Acts chapter 10. Just real quickly, let me share this verse with you. As we note how the Lord and the Holy Spirit worked together. Literally powerful, powerful life through the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, Jesus was God. He didn't need anyone or anything else. But He did. He operated and functioned in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like you and I need to do as believers. That's what He says here. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38. He says, well, let's go back to 37. That, the, that word, I say ye know which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Isn't that amazing? He said, well, there are two separate things. One without the other doesn't happen. The Holy Ghost and with power. They work together. Jesus was baptized. And the Bible says that, that that dove descended upon Him. Representative of the Holy Ghost. And when Jesus came up out of that water, that, that dove rested upon Him. And significantly saying to us that the Holy Spirit was with Him throughout His entire public ministry. Every time you see Jesus Christ, every time you hear about Him performing those great miracles... Every time you read about Him raising Lazarus or someone from the dead, it was in the very power of the Holy Ghost. The same power that you and I have available to us today. See, Jesus had a bag of tools at His disposal. That's how He lived such a powerful life. That's how He overcame all the obstacles that the devil threw at Him. That's how He could face Golgotha and the cross and crown of thorns prayer the word of God the Holy Ghost today you and I can live a life of power as well you know what we have at our disposal the same tools that he had Prayer, the Word of God, and the Holy Ghost. In Jeremiah 33, 3, 
The prophet says, call unto me and I will answer thee and shew thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. He's speaking from the advantage or vantage point of God himself. He is just a mouthpiece for God. And he's telling the people of Israel, he's saying, now God's telling you this. God says to all of Israel, call unto me and I will shew thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. He says, I can do all things. I can empower you to accomplish all things. I can give you victory in your life, in your marriage, in your home, in your communities, in your churches, in your world. I can do that if you allow me, but you have to call on me. I can do things you've never even imagined. Overcome obstacles you thought were impassable. That's a new word I created. I'm sure it'll end up in Webster next year in the new edition. Impassable. And if it is a word, I didn't know it. Jeremiah 33.3. In response to Knox's prayers, John Knox, you may have heard of him, a great leader in the Christian movement a number of years ago. Mary, Queen of Scots, made this statement. She said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of, of, of Europe. I mean, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. That's power. Power through prayer. Let me ask you, what kind of prayer life do you have today? I mean, if you rated it on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your prayer life with the Lord? I mean, it's just a question only you can answer. No one can answer that for you. But may I say once again, if we want to live a life of power, we want to be able to come sorrow and suffering and overcome the stress of life, if we want to be victorious, although we're facing tremendous obstacles in this life, we're going to need prayer. Prayer produces power in the life of a believer. So how's your prayer life? I mean, do you pray five minutes a day? Do you, do you, do you even set aside a time specifically for prayer? Have you done that? Do you make it a a personal commitment to say, Lord, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to cry out to you. I'm going to pray to you every day for so long at such a time and in such a place. Do you set aside that time for prayer? Some people, and again, I'm not opposed to it. I, as you can tell, I'm quite active in it myself, working out. Oh, better watch it. I might strip a few buttons there. But the fact is, is this. We'll spend time to work out, run, take care of our bodies. We'll do all those things to get more power, to feel more grit, to be more fit, to have more energy, to have more strength. But sadly enough, as believers, we will neglect a power source that God says is much more powerful than that. Prayer. Spend 30 minutes on your treadmill, an hour on your elliptical. Zero in the Word or in prayer. That's sad. We need the real power. It comes from God and it starts with prayer. 
And then we can talk about the Word of God very briefly. The Bible says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit and the joints of tomorrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He says, The Word of God is quick and powerful. I need power in my life. I mean, I, I live in a world that tells me that morals are all changing. That society as we know it is no longer. That everything's different than it used to be. That the Word of God is outdated, archaic. I live in that world and so do you. And yet I know that the Word of God is true and I'm trying to live this book and I'm trying to be what God wants me to be and it's harder than ever it seems to stand for the Lord in this world in which we live. I need strength today. And so do you. Prayer and the Word of God. This book, he says, is powerful. The principles and the precepts that are bound within it offer us hope and help like none other. How you doing on that Bible? Not just reading it as we noted earlier, but if we're going to defeat a strong and be able to stand against the, the fiery darts of Satan and the temptation that he brings in our life, then we've got to be over to hide it in our heart. We need to really have a grasp on it. We need to know how to apply it and how to use it when it needs to be used. We need a grasp on it. How you doing on that? One to ten. How are you doing with your Bible comprehension, your Bible application? How are you doing on it? Is it any wonder that we're, we feel so powerless often when we consider how little time we spend on our knees and in that book? Is it any wonder? And I'm not trying to throw a guilt trip on anybody. I'm just telling you, if you really want power in your life, you need to seek the real power source, the Lord God Himself. And he says, I've got some tools. And the very tools that Christ himself utilized to overcome obstacles in his life and to be victorious and to live a power-filled life are available to you and I. Prayer, the Word of God, and finally the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 1, as the Lord was preparing to leave, he said to the disciples, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Listen, Holy, the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit of God provides us power. Hey, wait a second. I'm not talking about standing up here and hitting somebody in the head or healing somebody like you see on television. I'm not even talking about that stuff. I'm not saying you've got to do that. That's not even part of the plan here. I'm not even talking about that stuff. Personally, I'm, not, I'm just going to tell you right out off the bat, I, I don't believe God works that way anymore. Now, he will one day in the tribulation, just like he did when he was here. Just like in his first coming, he used those signs. He'll use those signs again in his second coming. But right now, we got a book that's complete. They didn't have a Bible that was completed back in those days. They needed those signs, and they needed someone to prove to them that he was who he said he was. And they needed to know that those disciples and those, those apostles that had the authority of God on their life. And how did they do that? By proving it by how they did and performed these, these uh, miracles. It was proof, positive, that God was all over them and that what they said was authoritative and very important. We don't need that today. We've got a book that's complete. It's right here. It's God's Word. But hold on. I need the power of that Holy Ghost. 
And so do you. I need that in my life, to live a life separated from this sinful world. A life that glorifies and magnifies Jesus Christ. A life that points others to Him. I need the Holy Spirit's power in my life so that my marriage is sweet. Because I can be a mean, nasty, rude, insensitive person without His presence and power in my life. I could treat my wife like dirt if it wasn't for the Holy Ghost in my life. If it wasn't for His presence, His power, and His attributes being manifest in and through my life, I can't even imagine how I'd treat my wife. It'd all be about me always. You want to know something? She needs the Holy Spirit in her life. She needs power to overcome her flesh and to be able to be the kind of wife supportive and encouraging and loving and nurturing as she needs to be here. Hey, listen, she needs the Holy Spirit. Needs to be filled with the Holy Ghost. She's going to function and operate the way God intended her to operate and function. Boy, I need the Holy Ghost in my home. Man, this world is like, you know, just like some kind of commercial 24-7. Always tempting my children away. Always telling them that there's a generation gap and you and your parents can't get along. I want you to know that's not true today. I thank God that through the power of the Holy Ghost, through prayer and through the Word of God, 20-year-olds and 19 and 18 and 17 and 16-year-olds gather together in a home and sit and talk together out in the living room and don't hide in their rooms. It's all because of Him. I don't buy into this lie of the devil. Because of the Holy Ghost's power in our lives and in our home, we're able to overcome obstacles that many have tripped over along the way. Not because we're anything, but because He's so big and powerful. And in that tool bag is that prayer that I can call upon Him at any time and I can read and learn and grow every day in His Word and I can be strengthened and upheld by His Spirit. Living a life of power. Not perfection, but power. We all war with this life, our flesh, and this world. But even as Christ overcame the greatest of obstacles, even death, so can you and I today. Through prayer, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit. And I just want to encourage you to employ those tools in your life to make them important to you and allow them to uphold you as God has designed them to, created them for. You'll never regret it. It all begins with a relationship with Christ, though. It starts with you and I Surrendering our will to His will. Saying to the Lord, first and foremost, I am lost and undone without you, Jesus. I'm just a sinner. And I need your strength, your help, and your salvation. If you don't know for sure heaven's your home today, I want you to know you can. You can settle it. You can settle it today. Why? We have His Word on it. And guess what? 
We got it in writing. This is a contract that can't be broken. If you come to Jesus the way he says to come to him, he promises to meet with you and to live in you. You'll never break that promise. The devil can't break it. You can't break it. It's in writing. Here it is. I trust you're saved today and you know without a doubt heaven's your home. I trust you've invited Christ into your life and made him Savior and Lord. Father, we come to you. We thank you again.